0: on the Google Play or App Store, or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly!
0: Check engine
2: light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE-certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today.
0: Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto parts! Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark
3: Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 132. Today in on the show, we're talking venison, and I'm joined by Wild Game Chef, cookbook author, and the host of the Sporting Chef TV show, Scott Laysa. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today on the show, as I just mentioned, I'm joined by Scott Laseth. And if you've been watching much hunting-related television over the years, you've probably seen Scott as he's hosted a number of different hunting and cooking-related TV shows, including The Sporting Chef and Dead Meat. He is also the author of The Better Venison Cookbook, and today Scott is going to be chatting with me all about this very topic of preparing and cooking better venison. Hopefully, with several months of hunting season now behind us, you and I hopefully we both got a freezer full of venison, and our goal today is to give you some next-level advice on how to turn all that frozen meat into some absolutely delicious meals now Dan is actually not with us today as I actually had to record this episode earlier in the day than usual so that I could get out hunting Uh, unfortunately nothing too exciting came of that hunt Uh, Holyfield continues to be very good at picking the right places to be and I continue to not be but I guess that's probably why I enjoy this deer so much and speaking of Holyfield I do have an update on our conversation last week and that decision on whether I'm going to pass him or not you know, if he actually gives me a chance, which that's no guarantee. But uh, I'm going to hold off on discussing that until Dan is back so that he can ridicule me if he wants, I suppose. <laughs> so with that said, we need to pause now for a quick thank you to our partners at Sitka Gear who have been making this podcast possible for about two years now. And unfortunately, as some of you let me know, there was some kind of audio glitch, I guess, in the last week's episode. I screwed up and it kept the Sitka story from playing properly. So I figured let's try it again this week so you can all see, and not see, so you can all hear Brock Bolt's Sitka story. So, as I mentioned, we need to thank our partners at Sitka Gear for their support of this podcast. And our Sitka story today comes from Brock Bolt of Wisconsin. And this year, he did something that I've been personally trying to do, as we've just been discussing, which is hunting and finally killing a buck he'd been after for several years. And after multiple past encounters and tons of pictures, finally this fall, a shot presented itself, and Brock closed the deal. Now, right after that shot, are you? Do you? Is it? Was it shock? Was it just a celebration? Was it? Did you feel any of that kind of sadness that now this deer that you've been hunting is gone? Any of those things happened for you?
4: I tell you what, Mark, you hit it on the on the head. Every single one of those emotions went through. I sat up in my stand for forty five minutes because I was shaken. I was emotional. And I got to call my dad and tell him basically I proved you wrong. You know, I knew I would get this deer. Um, it, it it was awesome. There were tears, fist pumps. Um, it it was just amazing. I'm still smiling ear to ear. (laughs) It's so awesome. (laughs) I'm sitting here looking at his rack right now.
3: I imagine that uh, is a big time distraction when I've got one of those sitting in my office that it's not quite up on the shoulder mount yet. I have a hard time not just holding it and looking at it and turning it around in my hands.
4: It, it, it's so funny. I mean, I, I I seriously pick it up on a daily basis and just, you know, I look at my other deer, my shoulder mounts on the wall and, you know, I just can't wait for him to be up there for, for the rest of my days, I guess.
3: <laughs> That's awesome. There's definitely a lot yeah. of special memories wrapped up in those things.
4: Oh yeah. It's, it's amazing. An animal can pump that many emotions through your body and, you know, and just drive you nuts. <laughs>
3: And that is, uh, that is the God's honest truth. <laughs> <laughs> These incredible memories were made by Brock while wearing his Sitka gear. And if you'd like to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel for whitetail hunters, you can visit sitkagear.com. Moving on, we also need to thank our partners at Yeti for their support of Wired to Hunt. And I got to say, when Yeti first came on the scene a few years ago, I was a little bit skeptical. But when I finally started trying their gear, I did really quickly become a believer. Uh, And one example in particular that kind of cemented the status of this product in my mind and this brand was this past summer. And as a lot of you probably remember, my wife and I spent a couple months going out west. And to avoid having to buy beef out there, we decided to bring venison from home for us to have our entire two months out there so the issue though was we we're going to take five or six days to get out there camping along the way and doing different things so i was kind of concerned about whether or not we could keep venison frozen and good for that entire time period you know could i take venison out there over the course of a week and have it not defrost well i loaded up my yeti with two months worth of venison threw a bag of dry ice in there shut the cooler and put it in the back of my pickup truck And then we spent five or six days driving down the highway in the summer camping and doing all this kind of stuff. It was in the 80s. And when we finally arrived at our rental home, I opened that cooler and swear to God, everything in there was 100% still frozen. There wasn't a single bit of thawing at all. And that just kind of floored me. That was like the aha moment. And I've had similar experiences with their other smaller coolers and their Rambler bottles. So you know, if you're in the market for a new cooler or you just need a really brag-worthy coffee cup, I really would recommend considering a Yeti. And if you're interested, you can learn more at Yeti.com. And now, back to the show and let's get Mr. Scott Layseth on the line. All right, with us now on the line is Scott Layseth. Welcome to the show, Scott. Good to be here. Yeah, I, I appreciate you taking the time and uh you know my co host Dan isn't able to be with us today, but he's a guy that I think really needs to hear from you because I know from previous conversations he's done a number on some of the venison that he's put in the freezer. So uh, I'm hoping that through our conversation today we can get some advice that's gonna help all of us successful hunters put that venison to good use, um, and talk about a lot of different techniques and ideas for cooking our wild game. But I guess before we get into all that stuff, um, can you give us a little bit of background for those that maybe aren't familiar with who you are and what you've been doing? Um, you know, how how'd you get to this point, and what exactly what are exactly you up to now?
2: You know, mine isn't exactly a well planned career path. I um, I've always hunted and fished. I have a degree in psychology and I was working as a bouncer in restaurants many years ago. They said, Hey, you want to be a manager? So I got a two week training course on how to be a cook manager, bartender, got shipped from Tucson to Phoenix, had a restaurant in outside of Sacramento. I live in Northern California and we had a game on the menu and people would say, well, how come mine doesn't taste like yours? I'd say, well, bring it in. And People started bringing their game to us, and we would prepare it at the restaurant. And from there, somebody noticed. I went. To, I was on HGTV on this, for three years, starting in the late 90s. And I've had a show on Sportsman Channel since they started 12, 13 years ago. Um, Sporting Chef, Hunt, Fish, Cook, Dead Meat, and the latest show is a reincarnation of Sporting Chef. And we, you know, we're there to give people some new ideas on what to do with their fishing game.
3: And you you also have a, a venison cookbook that uh, I actually have here in my home that's been very helpful too. So so you've definitely been doing a lot over the years to help to help the layman cook some some much improved wild game, right? That's has that been your your big goal?
2: That's the goal, and I'm I'm not trying to out chef anybody and have the most obscure ingredients and the most detailed venison recipes. Um, you know, the, to me, I want the venison to speak for itself. Um, I like fresh ingredients. I like venison that's handled properly. Um, if Dan's had some problems with his venison, the chances are um, he's probably overcooked it a bit. And what people need to worry about their chicken, um, not so much about their venison. We don't shoot three-legged deer with mange. We shoot healthy animals. And, you know, different parts of a deer require different kinds of cooking and it really it's almost that simple you know the the more tender cuts you want to cook fast and hot the the tougher cuts you want to go low and slow and it can be as simple as that that can change the way people enjoy their venison
3: so let's let's start right there can you tell us which are the tender cuts that should be hot and fast which are the tougher cuts that should be the other way
2: well, you know, the backstrap, the loin, is, is everybody's favorite. Now, if I could just get processors to stop cutting those up into medallions and butterflying them um, as a routine processing deal, that's that's one of my soapbox issues with processing. I like to take that backstrap and keep it as a whole loin. Yeah. Um, trim some of the silver skin, give it a good rub with olive oil, salt, and pepper, put it on a grill... Get it to about a 130 internal temperature. Slice it across the grain into these delicious medallions, and it just melts in your mouth. So I, I, don't, I don't know who decided that they need to be butterflied into half-inch thick little portions, but it wasn't my idea. Uh, the tenderloin on the inside is obviously the most tender part. It doesn't do any work. A lot of those muscles in the hindquarter that people grind into hamburger, if you remove them from the hindquarter, and you don't overcook them. You don't need to marinate them in something all night long to make them tender. Just don't overcook it. Slice it across the grain. I do it all the time, and people say, oh, wow, that's some really good backstrap. And I go, no, that's actually top round or bottom round. And um, The tougher cuts, one of my favorite is the is venison shanks, uh, the part that often gets cut into little circles to, for dog treats or thrown away, that lower leg section. You cook it low and slow, and it just falls off the bone. It's like veal osabuco. It's so delicious. Um, You have to actually tie a string around it when you cook it because it literally will fall off the bone, that tender. Um, Neck roast, shoulder roast, that's low and slow stuff. If I'm cooking a shoulder roast, um, I leave the bone in. I give it a good rub on the outside, brown it, Put it into a roasting pan i'm not too attached to a couple cans of beer some celery carrot onion covered up with foil and in about eight hours with a little bit of liquid in there um, it's going to break down and you'll be able to pull that shoulder bone out clean and these beautiful hunks of meat just fall right off Mm
3: -hmm. wow that does sound good so so if you were processing your own deer or someone was processing their own deer how would you recommend they go about breaking it down um and and i guess what pieces and parts would you say you should keep together? So you mentioned don't cut up your loins right away into steaks or medallions. Keep those whole. What other pieces and parts would you recommend we, we keep whole or together or you know, how we should manage that when we're actually doing it ourselves?
2: You know, a, a neck roast that a lot of people don't bother with neck roast. They're delicious. You can, you can fillet out a neck roast, but it's a lot easier just to cook the whole thing. Um, because it, it's a tougher piece of meat, so it needs to be cooked low and slow. Um, the hind quarter, if you're not going to cook it as a whole roast, um, take a good sharp blade and remove each muscle from that hindquarter. Get rid of all the silver skin. Anything that's not muscle has got to go. If it's an older animal, you may need to tenderize it a little bit. There's a, a gizmo called a jacquard that has these three rows of stainless steel blades. And it's kind of a spring loaded deal that it, you push down into the meat and it cuts across the connective tissue. If you've got a tough older animal that will turn your hindquarter muscles into loin like backstrap, like pieces. Um, and uh, any, you know, the top sirloin, keep it whole. What, what I get way too often is people that say, give me the loins and the tenderloins and then grind everything else into hamburger or make it into summer sausage or whatever right. and to me that's just wasting a whole lot of deer.
3: So how, how t- tell me more about the Jakarta or whatever exactly it was are you are you using that after you've cut that hindquarter into steaks or is, are you doing that when yes. the bigger pieces yeah. okay
2: It's it's J A C C A R D and you know, I've been using them for years. I, I've got no dog on the hunt. They're not sponsors or anything. They're just really handy. Um, there are other tenderizers that have little steel points, little needle points. They don't work nearly as good. This, the Jacquard, and I think there's a couple other ones that do the same thing, they have these flat stainless steel blades, and you don't even. it doesn't change the texture of the meat. Um, it's also really good for big Canada goose breasts that, are not normally everybody's favorite, um, but it'll tenderize it without changing the composition of the meat. It doesn't turn it into hamburger. You have to kind of look really closely and you see these little tiny slits in it and that'll break through the connective tissue and it. it makes a gigantic difference.
3: Hmm. Now in your book, in your cookbook, the, the better venison cookbook, I saw that you mentioned that you don't recommend using meat tenderizers that you, you know, like a, like a powder or something you shake onto meat. Um, why is that?
2: Well, I think that's, and I, and I see that in a lot of hunting lodges and duck clubs and things. There's a whole lot of Adolfs meat tenderizer. Um, to me, that, turn, that turns the texture, it makes it too mushy, um, as opposed to having, I like firm meat. The reason I think that people have gone to the meat tenderizer is because they've overcooked their meat. And if they just wouldn't cook it so long, you don't need meat tenderizer. To me, it gives it kind of an odd texture that isn't natural. Um, And really, if you've got a tough piece of meat, to me, the better way to do it is to to cut it up and cook it and turn it into stew. You know, you get cheap stew meat at the grocery store, beef stew meat. And it's one of those things where you brown it and it's going to get really tough. But eventually, it's going to get really, really tender. And to me, that's the better way of cooking a tough piece of deer as opposed to putting some kind of compound on it that's going to tenderize it. And it really – I just don't like the texture that it gives it once it's, once it's gone through the – whatever it is that's in the tenderizer.
3: Hmm. So speaking of tough deer, do you give any credence to the kind of longstanding belief that – older deer, are tougher, younger deer, are more tender. Is that a real thing, or is that just uh
2: Yeah, it pretty much is, but, I mean, and we've all had older deer that are going, wow, this tastes really good. But, you know, they the older you get, you know, the, the chances are you're pretty smart. Um, you've been able to avoid most predators and humans um, in order to live that long, and you've had a pretty good workout. And, you know, in general, younger females... Any kind of animal out there, if we're going to be cooking them, they're better eating than old males. It's just the way it is for whatever reason. um, You know, a young doe tastes better than an old buck all day long.
3: Would you say that's the case even with like a super tender cut, like a backstrap? Like is, is an old buck backstrap or loin not going to be as tasty as the young one?
2: not to me it's a different it's a it's darker it's tougher and by the way on those loins too um you'll notice that the grain runs at kind of an angle it doesn't run at a perpendicular perpendicular angle or something that kind of makes sense so when you go to slice that across the grain be very very careful which way the grain runs um it's uh cutting across the grain before you serve any piece of meat is going to make a big difference on how it eats but, yes, it's been my experience that the older uh, the older males are going to be tougher than the young young males or young females.
3: Can you elaborate on that last point, the cutting with the grain versus against the grain? What exactly do you mean by that, and, and why does that make a difference? How does that make a difference?
2: Well, if you look at any piece of meat,
3: um, any kind of – whether it's beef or deer, um,
2: you'll see that the grain runs in a certain direction. You'll see the lines through the meat. Um If you cut with the grain, if you're slicing it with the grain, and you look at this slice of meat and you see these lines running through it across the length of the meat, you haven't cut across the grain of the meat. Um, If you cut across it, what it does is it cuts across the connective tissue, and when you go to eat it, it's a lot more tender. Um, You'll notice you can get the same piece of meat, and if you slice it after it's cooked with the grain, it's gonna be a lot more tougher to the tooth than if you cut it across the grain. Um, if you get an older, tougher uh, backstrap um, and you're cooking the whole thing and you go to slice it, um, you'll notice a distinct difference between cutting with the grain and across the grain. Any, any kind of piece of meat, um, if you're gonna slice it, make sure that you cut across the grain.
3: Interesting, and is, so are you saying that with a backstrap, it's not always going to the grain's not always going to go along the length of the backstrap like you would assume, or is that that is the case?
2: No, it actually it actually goes at kind of an angle if you really take a look at that backstrap. And so what I like to do is when I'm cutting backstrap, I will cut it um, along the grain first and cook it in kind of sections slicing it with the grain about maybe four, three, four inches wide. And then I'll cook it. And when I go to serve it, I'll cut it across the grain. It just doesn't run either, you know, a direct perpendicular or all the way down the, the, the line of that backstrap. It runs at an angle. When you look at it, it's kind of hard to explain, but when you look at it, it's really obvious. Just make sure that when you go to slice it, you go across the grain
3: that's a good. That's good to know. That's something I never really thought about. And you would just assume that it would be running lengthwise all the way down that loin like that. Um, but that's very good to know. Speaking of loins. Yeah,
2: it makes it. It'll make a big difference.
3: Yeah. Speaking of loins, when it comes to the tenderloin, especially on like a younger deer, sometimes those can be so tiny. You, there's not a whole lot there right. to work with. Or if you you know shot maybe high in the on the lungs or something like that, you might have a little bit of issue where broadhead nicks it or some kind of blood issue like that. Um, how do you go about using those, those inner tenderloins? Cause sometimes it's not really enough for, as a main piece of meat.
2: No, it's more of a snack on the, on the little animals. Um, you know, it's certainly not the same as a beef tenderloin. It's just, this little flat piece of meat. And you know, a lot of people call the backstrap tenderloin, but that's the loin. It's the in that flat inside muscle you're talking about. Um, You know, you can try and stretch your tenderloin and wrap it in bacon and do all those kinds of things, but really, to me, it's salt, pepper, olive oil, slap it in a hot skillet or in a pan, and then cut it up and give everybody just a little bite of it. Okay. There's just not, there's. I mean, you could figure out a way to stretch it, but it's so delicate, so tender, um, unless you happen to be long on tenderloins and you've got bigger deer around there, there's just not a whole lot to
3: it. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, to your point, sometimes you don't want to mask that because it's just such a tender, delicious piece that uh, keeping it simple and light kind of is the best way, I think, sometimes to, to enjoy something like that.
2: Yeah, you don't... I'm with you. I mean, it's, if you you don't want to soak that in something that makes it not taste like tenderloin or whatever. I Like I said, salt, pepper, olive oil, and go, wow, that just melts in your mouth.
3: Yeah. Now, would you say, is that your basic recommended recipe for for making a basic venison steak too would that be your recommendation for a kind of a perfect simple venison steak
2: you know i'm i like to give it a good rub i'll put i'll take a venison steak and i like them on the thick side i'll want it to be about an inch thick i'm going to rub it with olive oil fresh garlic fresh rosemary Um, i use a lot of high mountain seasoning if you don't have high mountain um, some good coarse salt and cracked pepper um, I'm not opposed to marinating a piece of meat. I just don't want to marinate a deer steak so that it doesn't taste like a deer steak anymore. Um, all too often, what I hear from people is, man, I marinated it in teriyaki, and then I wrapped it in jalapeno and bacon, and blah, blah, and you know, it doesn't even taste like deer, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. and I'm yeah. thinking, that's not a victory. Um, <laughs> so, if it's treated properly, um, and you've, you've removed the silver skin, and you you know, a, a deer steak shouldn't have, it shouldn't look like a cross section of a hindquarter and have all the muscles um, attached with the silver skin. It's, it should be, each muscle should be separate, um, and just keep it on a high heat. You want to get it to rare to medium rare, uh, and it makes really, if you take a deer steak and you cut it in half, and you cook half of it well done and half of it medium rare. It's two very different pieces of meat. I am um, co- I love mushrooms. I like red wine. I like balsamic vinegar. If I've got a deer steak and a hot cast iron skillet, I'll throw in towards the end a handful of mushrooms, maybe some fresh herbs, a splash of wine, finish it with a little bit of butter, and then just make this pan sauce that I'm going to put over the top of it. But it's not going to compromise what that deer tastes like. I'm not trying to
3: cover up the taste of deer. Yeah. Something I read in, in your book that I found, it makes a lot of sense, is the idea of using a sauce like that to cover up the fact that your meat is medium rare. Because some people are a little weird about that and they're concerned. Like I know like my, my, my whole family, for whatever reason, cooked all of our steak like medium to medium well, and my mom was just so paranoid about ever having anything that was even a slightest bit rare and so for her i know that if she saw this really deep red inner medium rare steak she'd be appalled by it but if i put a little sauce on there with some berries or something that kind of blends in they have no idea that it's on the medium rare side and they're just shocked at how tender and delicious the steak is do you ever is that part of your strategy sometimes when cooking this way
2: i do that all the time with all sorts of dark fleshed game um you know a lot of times people say oh my God, it's so bloody. And, you know, if you if you take a deer hindquarter, if it hasn't been aged properly, you put it on a rack with a pan underneath it, in your refrigerator, and leave it there for two weeks. And it's gonna evaporate a lot of that capillary blood. Um, and it, you know, you've heard about twenty eight day age steaks and those kinds of things. Um, it's gonna make it so that it where we lose it a lot of times where we lose people is When they see any kind of juice on a plate, they're thinking, wow, that's blood. We can't eat that. We're all going to die. And you're not. I mean, I eat eat raw deer. I make deer tartare. Um, And when you cover it up with a dark sauce, if you want to fool somebody into showing them what deer tastes like, slice it thin Cook it to rare to medium rare, slice it thin, kind of throw it back in the pan with, a, with like you're talking about a berry sauce or something, and then just let them try it, and they just marvel at how tender it is. What I get all the time is people will say, man, how did you get it so tender? What did you put on this to make it tender? And I say, I just didn't overcook it. And a lot of times I'll show them a piece of the meat that doesn't have that dark sauce on it, and they kind of freak out a little bit. But it's it's you know it's almost baby steps. Some people you're never going to get to not eat their meat well done. They were raised that way. I've had people call me and say we want you to come out to wherever it is um, and cook a bunch of deer or elk for us. And I go okay. Well, how do you when you go to a restaurant how do you order your steaks? And if they say go well well done. <laughs> if everybody there is pretty much well done. I'm not the guy. Yeah. I can't come out there. I can't come out there and cook your deer. Well done. It's just, uh, it's not going to work for
3: me. I don't know how people can eat venison like that. <laughs>
2: well, and I, you know, my dad was an Alabama farm boy, so he, I mean, I had ducks that were cooked for an hour and a half and deer that was cooked until it was completely gray. And as much as I like to hunt, I'm thinking, man, if this is what this stuff tastes like, um, I, I do not think I'm to I don't know if I can hunt anymore. As much as I love to hunt, that overcooked game, to me, just doesn't taste good. And when you talk to people and they say, God, is it gamey? Is it livery? And I'm going, no, no, try this. I don't like liver. If my game tasted like liver, I wouldn't want to eat it.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think I think overcooked venison is to blame for a lot of the negative stereotypes about that, like you said, that gamey flavor that lots of people think is out there that in many cases it's just uh poorly prepared and and cooked meat oh i agree yeah now speaking of blood you were talking about blood there a little bit ago um i i've heard you say something about or or maybe i was reading it about the idea of, of wiping excess blood off of a piece of meat beforehand and i've always wondered about that i've always wondered like should i be drying this off should i not be drying it off what's your take on that you know,
2: game meat blood in general is not going to improve the flavor. And if you've got a deer steak, you know, let's say you've you vacuum packed a deer steak and it was not a bloody vacuum pack, and then when you go to thaw it out, there's a whole lot of blood in the bag. Um, that's not going to help the flavor of it. Um, if it if it hasn't been necessarily aged all that well, and then, and you've got a lot of blood in there, for instance, um, with ground venison. Um, if I get a package of ground venison that's really bloody, I'll put it into a colander and just let it drain for an hour or so. Um, I'll even kind of press down with it on paper towels and suck a lot of that blood out of there. It's been my experience that if that deer steak, for instance, is, is I'll, I'll even wrap it with two ply paper towels and wick some of that blood out of there, And then you rub it with olive oil and seasoning and that kind of thing. And then when you throw it in the skillet, whatever flavor you've added to it isn't going to be competing with deer blood, which to me doesn't taste all that great.
3: Yeah. And maybe that's some of that irony taste that sometimes people do talk about possibly. Um, Sure, sure. Now, we wipe off, let's say we, we draft some of that excess blood. Another thing that I know is recommended by a lot of people is to rest that steak either before or any type of any piece of meat, either before and or after cooking. What's your take on that? Do you do both? Is it just after cooking it?
2: You know, I used to always let the meat rest for half hour at room temperature, but I've since there's been some pretty good evidence that actually taking a frozen deer steak and putting it on the grill, you're, you're not going to lose any moisture content. Um, and it's still in that way you can get a good rare to medium rare in the center um, resting it after to me is more important because when you're when you cook any kind of meat all of the meat proteins all the juices go to the coldest part of the meat so when you rest it it gives it a chance to redistribute the juice in there to redistribute within the meat so that when somebody cuts into that deer steak they don't get to this middle part where all the juice starts running out it's a lot more even um uh, you know, one of the myths is that people people say that when you sear meat on the outside, it seals in the juices, and that's just not true at all. You can cook it low and slow, or you can cook it fast and hot. You bring it to the same internal temperature, and the moisture content is exactly the same. Um, searing meat on the outside makes it taste better, but it doesn't seal in juices. Um, you know, some people like the juices, some people don't want any juices. Um, so, um, you know, I give it a good sear. Don't cook it past about 130, 135 degrees. And it's, there's just absolutely nothing wrong with that deer meat.
3: So do you recommend always using an internal thermometer to check the doneness or do you ever do the finger test?
2: I'm the finger test guy because I've cooked a lot of deer. Um, I mean, I'm, I, it's, it's what I do. So, but for people that want to know, the people that are more prone to overcooking their meat, get a meat thermometer. You know, you can get one for five bucks at the grocery store, um, the same kind of one that a lot of chefs have in their side pockets on their shirts. Um, and if you're cooking your deer to 165 degrees, it's going to be gray on the inside. And I've had people say, "No, I cook it medium rare," and I'll say, "Describe it to me." They say, it's still a little pink. I said, still a little pink. I'm telling you, you're heading into the danger zone because once it comes out of that skillet and onto the plate, it's going to sit there for a few minutes, and it's going to start getting less pink and more gray. So if you've got that meat thermometer, I would highly recommend, if you're eating well done now, start at about 145-degree internal temperature. That's going to put you a little bit above medium rare. And you can work your way down to more tender. As you as you get closer to 130, 135, you're going to find that that deer is infinitely more tender. Um, I've had people tell me, what do you do with your deer steaks after you boil them? <laughs> um, you know, I use them for a doorstop. I don't know yeah. <laughs> why you would boil a deer steak. But there's people listening right uh-huh. now that are going, well, yeah, we've always boiled our deer steaks. And wow. to me, that's just crazy.
3: Yeah, that's
2: shocking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've heard it more times than I'd like to um, admit to. I'm really there's people boil. I've been places where they serve me boiled deer steaks. Wow. Um. I, yeah, there's nothing. There's
3: nothing good about it. Interesting. Um, back to the resting the meat, real quick on the specifics of that. How long? Because I've heard. Some people tell me five minutes. Some people say shorter or longer. What's your recommendation for that? How long it needs to rest? And then do I tent it with aluminum foil or do I just let it out to room temperature?
2: Well, I like to tent it with foil just because it's going to cool off. Um, you know, there's not not a whole lot of fat in the deer steak to keep it hot, to give it, make it very forgiving. So if you err on the undercooked side, if you take it off at 130 degrees, put a little tent over the top – just let it rest for five minutes, because you don't want to you don't want a cold deer steak. Um, and you can't rest it in the oven, because then that's not really resting it. So just let it sit. If you if you have a hot plate that you're putting it on, that's fine. You know, I, I'll take a plate, put a little water on it, and stick it in the microwave for three minutes to get hot, and then let that deer steak rest on that warm plate with a little loosely tinted foil over the top five minutes for a deer steak is plenty for a bigger roast. You want to let it rest about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, And then when you do slice into it, you'll find that the juice is distributed a lot more evenly and you're not going to have dry spots and moist spots.
3: So with that roast, when you say you need to let that roast rest, would it count as resting if I have it like in a crock pot on warm or is that still cooking it? I need to take it out and set it out for that period of time.
2: Yeah, that's, that's still cooking it. And when you're cooking it in a crock pot, are you cooking it to medium rare? Are you doing like a, is it's is it still on the rare side? Cause a lot of crock pot is, is what we use for the lesser cuts and, and more people are looking for more of a pot roast consistency. So if you're looking for that tender pot roast consistency, um, you know, you can leave it in the crock pot indefinitely, and it's not going to make any difference the resting part is if you're going for a roast that's gonna be like sliced roast beef that you would get at a deli with that nice red color in there.
3: I gotcha. need to
2: come out of the crock pot, need to let it rest on that warm plate for about ten or fifteen minutes. And then when you slice it, um you're not gonna have all the blood running out.
3: I follow you. So so yeah with my roasts I've always we've always done them kind of crock pot style or like in a Dutch oven, I guess. Um, where it's just right. a long long time with you know some type of broth or stock and vegetables and all that kind of stuff how would you go about doing the big kind of roast beef style thing where you're gonna slice off pieces I've, I've never done that what's the what's the strategy there
2: well the strategy you bone it out first so you're gonna remove that leg bone in there and then um, you want one I what I like to do is I like to kind of butterfly it out season it liberally with olive oil garlic high mountain, salt and pepper, whatever you got, roll it back up and tie it with some string. Um, and then I'll take some more olive oil on the outside and I'll brown it. You know, Dutch oven's a great way to do it. You brown it on the outside. Um, and I like to put a little liquid in there, whether it's wine or beef broth or whatever. Um, put a lid on it, stick it in the oven. You want to get it to about 130, 135 degree Uh, internal temperature and then you know it's going to work just like roast beef and you want to take it out you untie it and then you slice it and what it does um, you're still going to have some of that connective tissue in there that won't dissolve at 135 degrees but for the most part um, it's it's still a great piece of meat you just have to be very careful because the grain on those different muscles are going to be running in different directions so as you're slicing across the grain, you may get to a piece that's a little chewy, just kind of take a look at where that grain is and always go across the grain. And, you know, it's makes a great sandwich. Um, If you do it kind of Texas style, um, you can do it in a smoker or in a grill at low temp. Um, And you want to give it a mop, which is basically melted butter, a little bit of garlic and some water, um, and you just brush it while it's doing that, and it's going to keep it moist while it's cooking, and it's going to give it a nice crust on the outside. I mean, we like we like roast beef that's crusty on the outside and medium rare on the inside, and you can do the same thing with your deer roast.
3: Hmm. That sounds really good. Um, speaking of stock, you mentioned possibly putting in wine or, or broth or stock or something like that. Do you ever make your own venison stock? Is that is that something that is relatively easy for the average person to do?
2: All the time. Um, I have, there's usually a pot of stock going at my house, whether it's waterfowl. Right now I've got pheasant stock in there. Um, if you take the deer bones um, and you get, you, what you want to do is um, the bigger bones, if you can slice them in half because you want to get to that marrow on the inside, um, you roast them in a, uh, in a pan in the oven, get them nice and browned, Throw in some celery, carrot, onion. Get everything really nice and brown, and then I dump all of that into a stock pot. Throw in some fresh rosemary, some garlic. Um, Just cover everything with cold water, because what we want to do, the cold water, is gonna help bring the collagen out when you make the stock. Bring it to almost a boil, and then keep it uncovered. Let it simmer low temperature all night long. Um, In the morning, you're going to walk into the kitchen and go, wow, what is that incredible smell? Um, You take the the bone out. I kind of pour the whole thing through a colander. Um, The liquid that I've gotten out of there, I then take the colander, I'll line it with some cheesecloth, and pour it through that again to get the little pieces out. And then you can take that broth and put it back in the stockpot and reduce it by about half, and that's going to concentrate the flavor. And now you've got this venison broth that's so much better than any bouillon cube. Um, you know, I whether I don't care what kind of animal it is. If I'm roasting a few chickens, I'm going to always take the chicken carcasses and make stock out of it. I hate to waste that good protein because it tastes so much better than anything you'll get out of a can or a bouillon cube or
3: a paste. <laughs> What, what bones specifically should we be using for that?
2: You know, the ones that we normally have are, you know, if you've, if you've got that hindquarter bone, um, any, you, want, you want bone that actually had a fair amount of meat on it to start with, because that's going to give it flavor once it's browned. Um, you know, if, if all you've got is a bunch of ribs that you were going to throw away, those ribs make great stock because there's not a whole lot of meat on them. And a lot of people don't like to mess with the deer rib bones. Um, but if you roast them and throw them into a, a big stock pot and then reduce them down with that, with that liquid in there, they're going to make, they're going to make great stock. If you take, you do the neck roast and you pull all the meat off the neck roast after it's done, then you throw that neck roast, the bones, the neck bones into a stock pot and make stock out of it. It's great.
3: What about, what about leg bones? Is that too big? or Yeah, the leg, leg bones are great. You know, you don't
2: want to go too low. I mean, anything kind of above the shank, if there's bone left over it, if, if you've trimmed everything out, any of the stuff that still has the meat on it, you know, and the sinewy parts that you haven't been able to do anything with, um, once it's browned, and then once it's browned and you made stock out of it, you'll be able to shred some of that meat off it too that was otherwise not usable. Once you've made stock out of it, when you pour the, the solid parts into that colander, you can pull that meat off. It comes right off of those otherwise sinewy parts now. And you can use that meat to make barbecue or you can throw it back into a soup and make a venison soup or stew with it with that nice tender shredded piece of meat that would have otherwise not been usable.
3: Yeah. That seems like a good idea. Speaking of the things that always, you know, sometimes aren't usable or sometimes people don't think it's usable. You mentioned, you mentioned venison ribs. Is there any reasonable way to use them other than this, you know, this, this stock idea? Cause like you said, I don't, I think most people are intimidated by trying to get the pieces of meat out of there. Um, can you actually cook venison ribs like you could with, you know, other, real ribs? No, not real ribs, but you know, you you know there's,
2: like a like a pork
3: rib or a yeah. beef rib, there's yeah. just
2: not there's you know on, on an average deer there's just not a whole lot of meat on those ribs. So, you know if you're if 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 you're gonna cook them, what I like to do is I'll go, I'll take the ribs and I'll put them into a roasting pan and get them nice and browned on the outside. I'm gonna take my time with it until it's ten. You know if you're cooking uh, baby back ribs. Um, you got you can't rush it. In order for even those tender pork ribs, you can't do it quickly. It takes time to get them tender. So with the deer rib, as little meat as there is on there, um, brown it. Take your time with it. Put it into a covered pan with again a, a can of beer, a little stock, whatever. And then when they're when they start to get tender, then you can slap some barbecue sauce on them, throw them on the grill, and finish them that way. And that way you're going to get some flavor. And, they're you know, they're good when they've got a little crust on them, too. But if you just take deer ribs to me and throw them on the grill, they're going to be too tough and you're not going to be able to get much off the bone. you got to get them tender first, then grill them. And you're not going to get a bunch of meat, but it'll give you something to do while you're watching your steaks cook.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad idea. Um, another thing you mentioned there was pulling off some of that excess meat off of the bones and possibly using it in like a soup or stew. Um, I feel like there's like the generic stew where you just you know cook some stew meat and potatoes and a couple of pieces or a couple of different vegetables. But are, 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 are there any other ways that you create a stew or soup that's unique with venison that would be worth uh, worth sharing?
2: You know anything that any kind of stew recipe that, that calls for beef you can do with venison. Um, I love to take, um, a good dark beer like a Guinness and put that into my stew and give it that kind of flavor. It gives it a different dimension. I like, um, actually putting coffee into stews gives it kind of a, an acidic edge <laughs> and people all the a lot, all the time will say, God, what is, what is, I can't put my finger on what that flavor is. And it gives it kind of a smoky flavor. Um, and, and Once that coffee reduces in there and it, and it, it gives it more character, um, really anything you can do with beef, you can do with venison. Um, any, any of your favorite beef recipes, you can do with venison. A lot of times, it's just a matter of different cooking times. Stews are really forgiving because stew meat in general is you can use lesser cuts of meat. You can use those shoulder cuts, cube them up, brown them and then the liquid and slow heat and low temperature is what's going to make that work. I'm telling you, I don't care how tough the meat is, if you cook it slowly and liquid, it will eventually be tender.
3: All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break here for a word from our sponsors of this episode, Redneck Blinds. And as I mentioned last week, Redneck is offering a great deal for Wired Hunt listeners through the end of 2016. If you use promo code WIRED, that's W-I-R-E-D, at checkout on Redneck's website, you can get $100 off their hay bale blinds, $50 off their soft side blinds, or $20 off their portable hunting chairs or T-post feeder. And just recently, I was able to chat with Dr. Grant Woods about how he's personally been using one of these Redneck soft-sided ghillie blinds with great success.
1: Yeah, you know, my dad's 86, and recently went through a long bout of chemo, several sessions of chemo, so he's got a little bit limited mobility right now, and he really enjoys deer hunting, not going to climb a ladder stand or something like that, so I simply moved a redneck ghillie blind to the downwind side of a plot that I had put a camera on, knew some deer were coming in and I love the gilly because boy they're big, they're easy to get around. That helps with a you know, with a guy with limited mobility. We can get him in there and he's not stumbling or tripping and and easy to make him comfortable. I take a big padded lawn chair and sit in there so he's he's comfortable. And it was a wicked cold day, wind out of north, which was great for deer hunting, but not so good when you're down to hundred and thirty pounds after a chemo and you get cold real easy. Got Dad in the in the ghillie blind, and what made this work was, I mean, I just moved there literally that day, that morning, which deer often avoid anything that new, especially this late in season. This was a late season hunt, but I, you know, I set it right next to a cedar tree, cut a few limbs off of it, and just took some of the ghillie straps, if you will, or the material that makes it a ghillie blind, and tied the cedar limbs right in front, the easiest brushing in I've ever done, if you will. I mean, just, you know, I just literally took a couple of strands, tied some cedar branches on there, We got in the blind about three, by 3.15. We had a a yearling buck in the field and it kind of drifted on through and then a little later had a bunch of does come in and finally a, a nice buck come out and my dad was able to make the shot. But above and beyond that, I mean, it wasn't just dad making shot again, limited mobility and the deer come in at kind of an odd angle in the field and I had to get my dad up. He uses a cane, so not easy to do. Moved the chair over just a little bit so he could be more comfortable. You and I would just leaned over and shot, but my dad's not that flexible and was able to do all that without alerting the deer in late season. I thought that was a huge testimony to how well a ghillie blind works.
3: Awesome story there from Grant. And again, if you're interested in picking up a ghillie blind or anything else from Redneck for yourself, be sure to head to redneckblinds.com and use promo code WIRED. That's promo code W-I-R-E-D, and that's through the end of 2016. And now, back to the show. Yeah, that seems to be seems to be one of those rules that's hard and fast, and and, and thank goodness because it helps a lot of us out when uh, we do. Not, you know, we've got that type of cut that otherwise would be would be tough to deal with. I'm curious when it comes to chili. You talked about some of the soups and stews. Chili is another one that uh, is a frequent uh, venison dish that a lot of us are working with. What's your What's your ideal chili recipe going to look like?
2: Mine is going to be more of a Southwestern and it's not ground. It's cubed. Um, you know, the reason I think we have a lot of chili, a lot of venison chili out there is because people have so much of their meat ground. Whereas if you take that hind quarter, you bone it out and you cube out that meat and you brown it. Um, and then I'll throw in um, chopped onions, some, uh, different kinds of peppers. I like to use Anaheim's and Poblanos and get them nice and soft. Um, I'll put in a little bit of, of, uh, either beef or chicken broth or game broth, um, some tomatillos, fresh cilantro, cumin to season it, some cumin, a little chili powder, salt and pepper, and just let that simmer until it gets really, really tender um, serve it with warm flour tortillas, and people can just kind of spoon it into the flour tortilla and wrap it up. Um you can take you can do a chili Colorado, the same kind of thing, except you know those dried chilies that we see hanging in the plastic bag in the Hispanic section of the market. A lot of people don't know what to do with those.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: You soak them in hot water for thirty minutes, um, take the stem and the seeds out, throw them into a fruit food, food processor with a little bit of that water that you had soaking them, and um, that's going to give it that rich red color to your chili. Um, all too often, what most people do is they take their ground venison, and, and a lot of times it's ground too fine. I like more of a coarse grind. I like to add about 20% either pork or fatty pork or beef to my grind, um, and then you throw in the, you know, the chili seasoning mix and the onions and whatever, and it tastes good. Um, but I like to do it a little bit different, um, lived in Arizona for a number of years and kind of like that Southwestern flavor. So I'd, I'd rather have it cubed than
3: ground if I have a preference. Yeah, it does sound like a pretty good take on it. Um, speaking of ground venison, like you mentioned so many hunters, we have so much ground venison and I feel like there's like a lot of us, like I'm guilty of this too. You kind of have a couple fallback things that you do with that ground venison, but over the course of a year, you end up eating the same stuff over and over and over. It's like, okay, I'm having chili. Then we're going to sure. have hamburgers. And then we're going to have you know, Italian like pasta with meat sauce. Um, do you have any unique ideas for how to use that ground venison that's maybe a little bit different than what we're used to?
2: You know, I use it for meatloaf a lot. And and I'll take ground venison, um, ground veal, ground pork, whatever whatever's on sale and mix it up with it. Again, I might go southwestern on that too and put in some fresh corn and jalapeno peppers and some cheese in there and do my, and then what's really good about it is the next day after you've eaten the meatloaf, you slice that up, uh, throw it into a skillet and make a really cool meatloaf sandwich out of it. Um, Some good crusty bread on both sides. Uh, Take some mayonnaise, squeeze some lime juice and some sriracha in there and make a, lime sriracha mayo to put on top of your grilled meatloaf sandwich that you've made with your ground venison. And, and when you, when you're making venison burgers too, I mean, there's so many things you can do with venison burgers, venison meatballs, Um, add mushrooms, peppers, garlic, onions. I like to take a, uh, add blue cheese, crumbled blue cheese to my venison burger. You can either put it right in the center of it. So it's kind of like this blue cheese surprise in the center or, Mix it up with the whole thing um, and give it a blue cheese flavor. If you don't like blue cheese, use a cheese that you do like. Um, and that's actually that's going to add some moisture to it, too. If you saute a bunch of mushrooms, throw that in with your ground mixture. It's going to give it more moisture and more flavor. Um, you know, ground venison is dry. Um, it doesn't have a lot of fat in it. So I like to add some fat to it. And I'm by no means. If I have processed the deer, if, I'm, if I know it's been processed properly, I'm not afraid of a medium rare venison burger.
3: Yeah. So, so what is your uh, process for just a basic venison burger? What's the right way to to get that going from beginning to end?
2: Well, I'm going to take whole muscle um, rather than having it ground ahead of time and having it ground into burgers. I'm going to keep it frozen in two or three pound chunks, and then I'm going to throw it into a grinder with some, I I find that pork shoulder is just about the right consistency for me, the right amount of fat. Um, And I'm going to grind those two together. I'm going to season it with salt and pepper. Um, And then depending on what kind of flavors I'm into, I can just take that, turn it into patties and slap it on the grill. And that's a great burger as long as you don't overcook it. That pork shoulder is going to make it a little bit more forgiving because it's going to add fat to it. Um, so if you do happen to cook it beyond medium rare, it's not going to be dried out and, and overcooked. Um, but that's that's pretty much the grind. It To me, the burger, the meat's going to last a lot longer. It, it has more character if you thaw that meat out and you grind it fresh with that pork shoulder. It has a better flavor to me than if I've got a... Uh, some burger patties that I've had in the freezer for several months. I like the whole muscle meat better.
3: Hmm. So I know some people, when they you know they're not able to grind in their own pork, they'll use different binding agents to try to replicate that type of thing that'll be you know hold it together a little bit more and give it a little more moisture, like I don't know egg um, or breadcrumbs stuff right. like that. Is that egg a bad and bread idea?
2: And, no, that works fine, and and I'll do that too if something. You know, what I do is I'll I'll kind of squeeze it together. If it doesn't hold together, then I might add a little egg. Um, another thing that I like to use back on the southwestern deal I use masa flour, the same thing that you use to make tamales with, um, and um, it gives it kind of a kind of a corn tortilla flavor on the outside, um, and it's going to help it bind, especially if the ground is has too much blood in it. It's too moist. It's not going to hold together. So if you just take that ground and you just dust it with a little bit of seasoned flour or some of that masa flour, and then you start making your burger patty with it, it'll hold together. I I don't like to use a lot of breading in there, but um, I'll use that too if I need it to help bind it. An egg, of course, helps as well. So if your burger falls apart, it's easy enough to fix with the egg the breadcrumbs the flour and just play around with it give it a squeeze see if it holds together throw a little sample piece in the pan and if it holds together you're fine if not it needs a little help then sprinkle a little flour or whatever on there to help bind it together
3: Hmm. now what about the size of your patties i've you know you see lots of people do the really big thick patties but then i've heard some say you gotta do the super thin kind of smash burger style Um, what, what do you think is the best way to go about that?
2: Mine's about three quarter inch thick.
3: Um,
2: and then I just kind of press down a little bit and as it, as it starts to, you know, so it doesn't turn into, into a baseball, I'll just press down on it because I want that rare to medium rare. Um, I'm more likely to do it in a cast iron skillet than anything because I like to get a hot, hot, hot cast iron skillet. And just get it nice and crusty on the outside. Uh, once it's once it's well browned on one side, I'm going to flip it over, and then count to maybe 20. Put a little cheese on top, and that burger's is done.
1: <laughs>
2: um, to me, if it's if it's thinner, um, you have a lot more chance of overcooking it. But you know, again, I'm not eating your burger, so if you like it, if you like it thinner, crustier, whatever, it's it's a personal preference. Um, um, I'm. What I do want people to do, though, the people that are used to eating overcooked meat, just take 15 seconds out of your life and at least try a piece of medium rare. Um, if you have to be blindfolded or if you have to have a couple <laughs> glasses of wine to make that work, really, you're not going to die. Nothing bad's going to happen. You might discover that you have a whole different piece of venison in that freezer. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So so kind of back to that, um, you know, trying to get people to, to eat these pieces of meat a little bit uh, more rare. You mentioned earlier about the idea of marinating in different things like that. We talked about sauces, how that might kind of cover up the look of some of this meat. Um, when it comes to marinating a, a piece of meat, maybe that'd be for a steak or something along those lines. Do you do you have any recommended marinades? Do, do you tend to I think you mentioned earlier you, you stay away from it a little bit Um I guess what's your take on marinades and is there anything we should we should try on that other than your standard, you know, teriyaki sauce or worcestershire or that kind of thing?
2: You know, I, I stay away from sweet marinades like the teriyaki because it tends to burn on the outside when I go to cook it. So, if my go-to marinade is going to be olive oil, garlic, a little bit of balsamic vinegar, um, some fresh rosemary because I've got it all over the yard, salt and pepper and and not a lot of balsamic vinegar because i don't want it to taste real sour um and you could put a little red wine in there too helps give it some flavor some color um that's my basic go-to game marinade um on, i've got i've got a website sporting that's got that very same marinade on there too and um I, I'm not a big fan of trying to cover up, as we mentioned, cover up the flavor of the meat, um, and make it taste like something other than venison. I want I want a, a mild marinade. You know, with the olive oil, that's going to add some fat to it because there's really so little fat in deer steak. Um, it's going to add some fat to it. It's going to add some flavor to it, and with that oil on the outside of it, it's going to help brown it when you do throw it on the grill or put it in a pan. Um, the you know the the deer poppers and duck poppers with the jalapeno bacon cream cheese etc. They're good, but they don't taste like deer to me.
3: Yeah, it it's just kind of an unnameable deliciousness. But <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yeah, anything with bacon and jalapeno. I mean, you could do that same recipe with your finger, and I think it would taste pretty good. <laughs> yeah, let's but, not test um, that theory. I I, I I just I hate to do that to my venison.
3: Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's funny. Um so we're moving into the holiday season. All right, Christmas is coming up here. A lot of people are going to be fixing maybe some of their own venison for their family and friends. I'm curious first venison appetizers. Do you have anything on that front we should be thinking about to uh to start off the meal?
2: You know, that's a that's a great use for that tenderloin. Um a little grilled tenderloin, maybe just a little mild mustard dipping sauce. Um, while you're everybody's in the kitchen waiting around, um, the uh, you can use every part of that deer for that for the venison main course. Um, I'm going with that that whole loin, that backstrap that I was talking about, and I'm going to give it a rub with um, olive oil salt, pepper, a little bit of coffee in that rub too gives it again, it gives it, makes it darker on the outside, gives it a nice crust. You just take some ground coffee. You can use instant. You can use whatever grounds were left over from your coffee this morning and add that to the rub. Um, Brown it well on the outside. I don't care if you cook it on a grill, smoker, whatever, don't get it past 130, 135 degrees and just, You're going to have this delicious medium rare backstrap. Slice it, serve it with some mustard, with some horseradish sauce, just like you do prime rib. Take ground horseradish, um, some sour cream, a little bit of Worcestershire and some fresh rosemary. And you serve that on the side. If you don't like that, you just don't deserve to be eating this venison. I'm telling you, (laughs) it's so good. Um, you know, any of the other appetizers, too, if you if you take um, some of the smaller um, muscles out of the hind quarter, you cut them into about two inch, two inch widths um, and you wrap the whole thing encase case the whole thing in bacon um, and make a bacon shell. And I think I've got that in my cookbook, too. Um, and then you after you grill it on the outside, once the bacon's browned on the outside, it's done and you slice it into little bacon-wrapped venison tidbits with a little dip in sauce, that makes a great appetizer, too. Um, any kind of skewered appetizer is great, and you can take some of those lesser pieces, too, and you can dice it up, get it nice and crispy, throw it on your green beans, um, and people won't even know it's venison.
3: Wow. That's... Uh, the issue here is that it's just about lunchtime here in Michigan while we're, while we're doing this, and all this is making me very hungry. Um, so Good. I'm going to have to I'm gonna hit the kitchen here pretty quick. So those are some appetizer ideas. You mentioned what sounds like a terrific main course. Is there any other ideas for the main course other than that loin idea?
2: My all-time favorite fancy food surprise dish is the venison shanks that we touched on earlier. You just have to save up your shanks in order to feed if you're feeding the family. But if you take those about the lower leg section, right about, you know, you can tell where the, where basically the meat stops and the, and the sinew begins. Um, and I like to take them and cut them into about probably four to five inch long pieces. Um, tie a string around them cause they're going to fall apart. Um, give them a good rub. You're going to take, I like to take, I've got a big square Dutch oven that I use. um, And I put a little olive oil in there, get them really well browned. And then I'm going to take a bottle of wine, a little balsamic vinegar, some garlic, um, fresh herbs. I'll throw some celery, carrot, onion in there to make the stock taste good. Then I'm going to cover it up once I've browned it and let them just sit in there at low temp for about, three to four hours, that's how long it's going to take. And this is something you can actually do a day ahead of time. You'll know it's done when that meat just wants to fall right off the bone. So if you've ever had short ribs in a restaurant, or if you've ever prepared short ribs where they're just so very tender mm-hmm. and almost pot roast tender, that's what's going to happen with those shanks. Um, and you take the the pan juices um, and you pour the liquid out, and you whisk a little butter in there with it, and maybe throw in some mushrooms, and you make that as your pan sauce. You set those shanks right on top with some garlic mashed potatoes and your favorite vegetable in there. That's a meal that people are just going to go nuts over.
3: Yeah, that uh, that sounds very good. And th- all that sinew and that 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 weird tough stuff that kind of dissolves when you cook it for that long in that it, in that way, right? It disappears.
2: Sure. You can also take that, take that loin and you can butterfly it. Um, Take your knife, go along the side of it, butterfly it, and you can stuff it with uh, mushrooms, cheese, prosciutto, any of those kind of flavors. Then you tie it back up with string, roast it. And then when you go to slice it, you've got this really cool center in there. You got a little stuffing on the inside, put your sauce, uh, whether you're a horse rider sauce or a, a wine reduction or even that the balsamic berry thing that we kind of touched on earlier too and that is going to make for a great meal uh you know this even people that that don't like venison I serve them things like that I just don't tell them it's venison <laughs> um yeah and uh, you know I, oddly enough my wife is not a big venison eater and um, I have a blog on Winchester, um, whitetail.winchester. I have a venison blog there. So I was doing a food photo. I was doing venison bulgogi, which is kind of a Korean fast-cooked marinated venison deal. And she said, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, it's beef. It's just supposed to look like venison. And um, and I'm, it's for a photo. She goes, oh, okay. Well, she took it outside and she was eating it. She got down to one last piece. And I said, oh, yeah, that's venison, and she stopped <laughs> eating it. She said, "You lied to me." I said, "Well, you wouldn't have eaten it if I didn't lie to you." That's so. Funny. I do that routinely with people. I will lie to them outright and tell them later, "Oh, that was venison," because so many people have decided that they don't like the taste of venison because somebody done something wrong with their deer earlier, and um, and they'll try it and they'll go, well, "That doesn't taste like any venison I've ever had." Yeah, and it's as simple as. Taking the right cut of venison and preparing it the right way, and in general on the better cuts, don't overcook it. On the lesser cuts, cook it low and slow, and it'll completely fall apart on you. Really, if you don't like the taste of deer, don't blame the deer.
3: Yeah, <laughs> wise words, I think, right there. So, so I don't mean to, I don't mean to open up what might be a, a tough topic. But why doesn't your wife like to eat venison?
2: You know, it's a—it's just a thing. She didn't grow up in a hunting family, and um, you know, I've been married for 32 years, and so she's she's seen her share of it here, um, you know. And I'm always cooking wild game for large and small groups, and television shows, and things. And um, you know, it's just one of those things that she is not—she's not, not going to hop on board on the venison thing if she hasn't done it by now. Yeah. But I'll still sneak it in, and um, and just not tell her. You know, if I, you can only do it. You can only lie so much because eventually they're going to catch on. Right. <laughs> and and so if I did it too often, she would suspect it all the time, even when I served beef. So, um, it's not for everybody, you know. So I, uh, she, you know, she'll swear it. Well, that just doesn't taste right, and it's and it's in her head, and she knows it, and um, and it's just one of those things I've
3: learned to live with. Yeah, yeah. It is funny, though, how I think a lot of people, especially before they've ever tried venison or wild game or anything, they have this preconceived notion that because it's different than what they're used to or because, you know, for whatever reason, they think if it's a wild animal and, and Joe killed it, well, ugh you know, that seems weird or it's not going to taste good. There's, there's so many of these, I think because so many people are disconnected from it, um, they have these strange assumptions about it. Um, in most cases, usually if they, if they can try it with an open mind, they realize there's not so much truth to it, but, uh, it's tough for some people to get over. I understand that.
2: Yeah. A lot of people think that their meat is raised in shrink wrap packages at the grocery store. (laughs) Yeah. And you know you've got people coming out of the city now to shoot their first deer and discover the roots to their food, and which is great. I mean, this is that's something we've done all of our lives, right? It's we we hunt and we bring food home. We know how great it tastes. I think it's great that people are figuring out that food maybe isn't raised at the grocery store, but people have a mental image of oh, I can't believe you you're eating bambi. They're so beautiful. Well they're delicious too. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we have to harvest our deer or they'll be overpopulated. We're living where they were and there's no choice. We have to hunt deer. yeah. And so, um, it's, it's, it's part of the deal. It's not, it's not a matter of if we, uh, you know what would happen if we stopped, if all of a sudden we couldn't hunt deer anymore, Yeah, there'd be a bunch of sick dead deer everywhere.
3: Yeah, and then and then you've got people that are happily eating their ribs and hamburgers and things, and uh, conveniently choosing to ignore the fact that that was once a cute calf or piglet. Right. Um, right. And it's uh, like you said, when they see it in a cellophane package, it uh, it doesn't quite connect in that way for them, and they just uh, so many people have no idea, or just choose to keep it in the back of their mind and not ever think about it. So. Well
2: and that's what I'll ask them. What do you have? What? Why don't you like cows? What do you have against cows? Why are you yeah. eating them all the time?
3: <laughs> yeah. So, Scott, this has been this has been really helpful, I think, for a lot of people. But if someone's listening now and they're thinking, hey, I want to try some of the stuff, but I cannot remember that full recipe you mentioned for such and such, <laughs> where can they go to get more, to learn more, to get your cookbook or to watch your show, all that kind of stuff?
2: Uh, the, the TV show is on Sportsman Channel. It's called Sporting Chef, and it's on – Sunday mornings or Sunday afternoon, twelve thirty p.m. Eastern, and it's on a few other times during the week. Um, SportingChef.com is my website. Um, we've, if you go to SportingChef YouTube, SportingChef Instagram, we've got all sorts of stuff there. Um, I'm also the cooking editor for Ducks Unlimited magazine, so if you go to the Ducks.org website and you're a waterfowl guy, there's plenty of stuff there for you. Uh, the cookbook is. Most easily accessible on Amazon, and it's the Better Venison Cookbook. Um, uh, Whitetail.Winchester is my venison blog. Lots of free information out there. I would start with the Sporting Chef website and the Venison, uh, the Winchester blog. And if, if you still need more, I'd appreciate it if you buy a cookbook. But really, there's enough free information out there on what I do to keep you busy for a long
3: time. Yeah, well well I can attest to to what you're putting out there. I've put some of these recipes to the test and have really enjoyed them. I think I had an apple stuffed venison backstrap relatively recently that was from the cookbook that was dynamite. Right. Um so so yeah, anyone listening, highly recommend you check this stuff out. And Scott, thank you so much for sharing this and spending your time with us.
2: Yeah, man, I appreciate it. Thank you.
3: And with that, we will wrap this up. So big thank you to our partners who help keep this show on the air. So thanks to Sick Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Yeti Coolers, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And thank you all for listening today. Really appreciate it. And I hope you can put some of this venison cooking advice to some good use soon. I wish you good luck braving the elements here on your next late season hunt. And I hope you'll stay
0: Wired to Hunt. It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.